Genesis 2, 9, and 15 through 17. And out of the ground the Lord God made a spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Marcus. Well, uh, my name is Andrew. If I, if I don't know you, I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood campus. And uh, if you don't know me, you might not. I, I'm a young uh, parent. Of young, I'm, a, I'm a young parent, and I have young children. Um, <laughs> young parent in so many ways. Uh, I have a, a daughter uh, named Avery. She's almost six. I have a son named Benjamin. Uh, he just turned four. And uh, over the years, you know, since, since I've become a parent, I've been, I've been talking to many of you, trying to glean wisdom around this whole, this whole parenting thing, you know, how to do it better. And one thing I've learned is that there are these kind of key moments in the life of a child that, that kind of signal the end of an era. So, and that it's important to prepare yourself for those moments. So, you know, the first time you hand over the car keys, kind of the end of an era. The first time uh, they come home <coughs> late on a curfew, it's an end of an era. Uh, the first time... They go on a date, stuff like that. And I, I had one of those moments recently. Um, and no, it, it wasn't Avery driving. She's not ready for that yet. But it, I had one of those moments recently with, with her. And uh, the second it happened, I knew that the, the way I parented, it needed to change uh, forever. And it was like a Saturday afternoon. Um, Becca was out and about. It was just me with the, with the kids at home. And uh, Avery did something to her brother. I don't know what it was. She took something from him or said something to him or did something to him, and, and he got really upset. And I, and I heard and I said something profound like, hey, don't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, be nice, be nice to your brother. Um, and Avery stopped and she looked at me and she said that awful word, that awful word is why. Why? Why be good to Benjamin? Why be nice to him? And, you know, it wasn't one of those, it was the way she said it that scared me. It wasn't one of those like, you know, the, the games that you can, the kids can play. Why? They keep asking why. It's just kind of an innocent, it's a fun thing. It wasn't like, it was a deep philosophical why she was asking me. She was almost, at, I could see it in her face. She was almost asking herself the question. Well, why? Like she'd never thought about it before. You know, it's like she was, like she was thinking for the first time, you know, there's this guy, this, I, I've been obeying this guy who claims to be my father for years. <laughs> why? <laughs> what? Why do I listen to him? What does he know anyway? Why don't I do what I want, right? You could, I could see it happening. And so I was, I was terrified. So I, you know, I put on Care Bears and I lived to fight another day. So just to explain the... <laughs> why, that question why. Why doesn't go, it doesn't go away. Uh, why obey? Why be good? It's a really important question. Uh, it's one that every human person, my daughter included, has to wrestle with. Why? Why be good? It's one that every human culture and society eventually has to wrestle with. And, and what's right and wrong and who decides? And we've been in, in this series, uh, uh, Randy mentioned earlier, on the stories we tell ourselves, on the narratives uh, of, our, of our lives, these, kind of, these deep assumptions that we have about ourselves and the world and how, how those two things interact, these foundational 
beliefs that we hardly even think about. We're not even conscious of them anymore in many cases because they're so ingrained. And, and, and what we've been doing is taking those and comparing them to the biblical story, the biblical assumptions about life. Uh, primarily, we've been in the book of Genesis to help, to help guide us there. And this morning, we're looking at another one of those stories. It's our story about right and wrong. We're looking at the story of right and wrong. It's a story we tell, that we wrestle with deeply, I think, each, each one of us. And in many ways, the, the story of our, of our culture and time, we're trying to summarize it in kind of one statement, is the idea that we get to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves, right? We, we've summarized it basically as, I decide what's right. It's a summary statement of, of kind of the cultural story about right and wrong. Uh, I decide for me, you decide for you. And we can talk about it, and we can argue and disagree, but what we can always fall back on, well, that's your opinion, and this is my opinion. We agree to disagree. I don't have the right to tell you that you're wrong, and you don't have the right to tell me that I am wrong. Does that make, does that make sense? Um, we decide what's right for ourselves, and it's relative. It's relative to how you're raised, what culture you're in, uh, where you were born, Right? what your family was like, it's relative. It's not rooted in anything permanent. And there are different systems of right and wrong that are relative to culture and time, and no one system is better than another. They're just different, uh, and uh, it's relative. And that view, kind of I'm trying to paint a picture of it, that view is getting more and more popular uh, in the United States. So according to Barna research done last year, more and more Americans are, agree with the kind of the sentiment that right and wrong are largely a product of your own personal experience. What you believe to be right and wrong is largely a product of your, of your life and your experience. And the, and the best a human being can do is to, uh, is to, is to figure out what's, what works for you and do that. What's right and wrong for you, you do that. That's the best you can do as a human being. And even on a really popular level, if you just look at, you know, some of the really popular characters and TV shows that we watch. You think of like a Breaking Bad and a Mad Men, if you've watched those. Those are deeply morally ambiguous shows. Even, even the main characters are kind of like anti-heroes that you don't really like them, <laughs> but, the, but you can't really judge them right and wrong either. It's really not what the show is, is doing. Um, there's no good and bad. There's, there's, they just are. And, and because I think we're increasingly convinced that none of us have all the truth, and so all we can do is follow the, our own moral intuitions as best we can and, and try to live together and move on. So here's what I want to do this morning. Uh, really, we've been doing this this whole series, but we, I haven't, we haven't named it out loud. I, I thought it might be helpful to just say it out loud. So uh, what, what we're going to do is we want to compare that story to the biblical one, and we're going to start with where they agree. We're going to start with where, where, do the two, where do we all, we're all on the same page. Then we're going to go to where, where do they begin to diverge? Where, where are they different? the biblical story of right and wrong, and I decide what's right. And then we're going to conclude with how does the Christian faith in particular actually give all of us what we actually need and want? So where we agree, where they disagree, and how does the Christian faith, how does the Christian story in particular kind of bring us all back together? So first, where, where does the Bible story and, and, and the cultural one, where do they agree? And it's, it's basically Everybody agrees, I, at least in my, in my own estimation, that we are deeply moral creatures. Everybody knows that. Human beings are deeply moral. Basically, no one disagrees with that. Right and wrong, it's a critical part of human experience for every human person. No matter what story we tell ourselves and or what story we believe to be ultimately true, we basically all agree on that. We are deeply moral. 
And in the biblical story, when you reflect on it, it, that makes a lot of sense. When you look at Genesis 2, you see that human beings were designed with right and wrong in mind from the very beginning. And I just want to reread uh, Genesis 2, 9 very quickly to you. So, and out of the ground, the Lord God made, this, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then jump to verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So God, the, the, the foundation of right and wrong in, in the biblical story, God puts humanity in a beautiful garden full of trees. I like to picture, right, it's, it's fall in Kansas City. There's amazing colors and beauty, thousands of trees, incredible diversity, each one bursting with delicious fruit to eat. The, the text says, pleasing to the eye and good for food. So thousands and thousands of trees. In the middle of the garden is the tree of life. And the tree of life, at a minimum, what I think, you know, it's Adam and Eve have access to immortality through it. They don't experience death in God's original design. Um, And God says, of all of those trees, right, they're all yours. Anything you want, any time of day, it's yours, except for this one. And there's there's a contrast in the text between, there's everything, God gives everything except this one thing. And it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we're going to talk more about that tree in, in, in a minute. But, but right away, uh, you see that God has put moral boundaries in place in his original design in Genesis 2. Even in God's original design for human life, before Genesis 3, which if you know, that's the fall, that's when everything goes, everything gets wrecked, um, God had moral boundaries in Genesis 2. You can, he says you can eat of any tree of the garden, but not this one. There's a command entrusted to humanity to obey, to listen to to believe. So it's a part of who we are. So it isn't surprising that every human person basically has very strong opinions about what is right and what is wrong. It's, it's universal. We're hardwired for that. And I, and I you know, just, I want to give you another example. Just look at our own culture, for example. Okay, think of the pressures we put on businesses, not to just be successful, but to be good. Right? Think of all the, you know, the campaigns to uh, for free trade and buy local and organic only, right? It's not enough that you provide food. You have to do it the right way. And another example, one of Google, um, you know, Google is a big company if you haven't heard of it. So one of Google's, um, yeah, Google it if you haven't heard of it. So one of Google's first value statements, one of their first value statements as an organization uh, was don't be evil, which is not a very high, high bar, admittedly. But... <laughs> But they, they were recognizing that they have a moral role to play as actors in society, even as, even as a, a private business. And our society today, even though I think solutions are very divisive still, I think you sense, if you pay attention, a real passion around issues of injustice and opportunity for the vulnerable and fairness and equality in our world. And it's, I, personally, I've been amazed to watch the generosity around the country, around um, the recent hurricanes that have, that have hit. Just the amazing amount of resources um, that, are, that people have poured into uh, areas affected by Harvey and Irma. It's incredible. It's blown me away. We're a deeply moral society. It's, it's obvious, I think. We deeply care about right and wrong. And we all basically want to be good. Every person I know wants to be good. And that, that shouldn't surprise us. We're made that way. This is, this is a real longing that, that's, in, that's in our world. And it's not limited to certain religions 
or certain countries or certain worldviews. It's certainly not limited to Christians. There are good moral people everywhere. It's true. And that's a good thing. I think we can all agree on that. We, we want that. That's good. We're a deeply moral culture. Okay, that's where we agree. I, here's where we begin to diverge. The story, around the story of I decide what's right. We're a deeply moral people, but we can't explain why. We don't know why. Right, this is where they begin to kind of veer, these two stories that veer apart. You know, once you say, once I say, I decide what's right. I'm the ultimate authority in my own life around what's right and wrong. And I jettison the biblical story of a creator who defines what is right and wrong. Right, one who puts the tree in the garden and says, not this one. Every other one, but not this one. Then I no longer can say with any certainty what is right and wrong. And here, I want to talk more about that. Right? We, we all want to be good, but, we, but we, we truly cannot explain why with this story. My daughter got it right. It's not enough to say, be good, do good. Why? And no matter where you are this morning, no matter what story is framing your idea of right and wrong, you, that story has to be able to answer why. It's not enough for your story to say, here's what's good and here's what's bad. It has to explain to you why. Why is that good? Why is that bad? By what authority is it good and bad? And I'm going to get a little apologetics on you, which some of you really like and some of you really don't. And I get that. But it's important. This is really important. We have to talk about this. It's a very important conversation happening in our country and culture today. Most people, okay, even if they do not have a strong religious tradition, strong religious conviction, Right? If you gave them a survey, maybe, you're, maybe that's you, you'd click none. Right? It's like, I'm, I'm not, are you this, are you this? It's like, nah, I'm none of those things. Even, even um, people that have no traditional religious belief, how, you, we have strong moral convictions. And many people of no religious belief are good people. I want you to hear me say that. I'm not, this has nothing to do with who's good and who's bad. Uh, sometimes, the, sometimes the nuns are better than religious people, let's be honest. <laughs> And as a society, we've tried to embrace everyone. We've tried to say, okay, it's, okay you, you, do, you decide what, what you want, and I'll decide what I want, and we'll, be, we'll work it out. We'll, we'll figure it out. It'll be fine. But the first problem with that story, with that philosophy, is w- without the biblical story of right and wrong, is that we cannot explain where right and wrong come from. This is the most basic ethical question that you have to answer. Where do right and wrong come from? And the, and the I decide what's right story has absolutely no explanation for that. That relativism, that, the idea that you decide what's right and I decide what's right, it's unable to answer that most basic question. And, and even though we all know, every person knows that there is right and wrong. Everybody knows that. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So who in here likes Harry Potter? Anybody? You guys are so brave to read. No, I'm just kidding. No, that, um, <laughs> Yeah, most people do. It's a, it's, it's a really good story. Do you, um, now, here's the question. So, if we're all moral relativists, this is one of the most popular books written in a long time. If we are truly moral relativists, and right and wrong is, is a concept that we make up on our own, that's not really rooted in anything. We, just, we, we decide what's right and wrong. Uh, why doesn't Harry Potter lose in the end? Why not? Well, the immediate answer is, you know, because it would be the worst ending ever, right? <laughs> but why? Why? Well, it's because we all know, even though we cannot explain it, even if we cannot explain it, 
we know that the good guy should win. You know it intuitively. It's in you. And literary theorists have studied stories all over the world from every culture, and and they basically have found that the best stories obey a moral framework, that the good guy wins and and evil loses. It's almost universal in every human person. We all have this inescapable sense that, that right and wrong is not just true for me. It's true for everyone. It's true for the whole universe. But the story we often find ourselves living in has absolutely no explanation for that. Just, if you bring it, it's just like you just kind of shrug your shoulders. I don't know. And the best we've done, at least as far as I can tell in recent years, to describe where this deep sense of right and wrong come from, the most popular explanation I think you'll hear today is one rooted in something called evolutionary psychology. And I want to bring this up because many of you are in school, you're in high school, you're going into college, um, and as you read at the popular level, this is the, this is the theory you will hear about where right and wrong come from, generally. That's the most popular one uh, right now. And probably the most influential book written uh, recently in this regard is by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. He's a moral psychologist and sociologist out of New York University. He is an, he's a, a secular atheist. He's not, not a believer of any religious tradition. Um, and he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. Really influential book. Uh, lots of people are reading it right now and dialoguing about it. And in the book, he tries to unpack from his own kind of worldview the, moral found, moral, the foundations of moral thinking. She's trying to explain this. And basically what he says is, you know, we evolved from, you know, less complex creatures and uh, we kind of have a gene that helps us to be selfish. We need to be selfish. There's like the selfish gene. But we also have this herd gene that helps us to care about others when we should, when we should help other people. And the two, somehow over this random process of evolution, over millions of years, these two things emerged that helped our species to survive. And that's where uh, right and wrong come from. And that's, that's pretty representative of, of our top ethical thinkers uh, in, our, in our kind of culture today, is that evolution explains morality. It comes from a random process with no design, with no purpose at all, uh, over millions of years um, in the process of natural selection. Am I the only one that finds that deeply dissatisfying explanation for right and wrong? Does that help you answer any question in life? Does that help you make a good decision? No. No. It's, it's really not helpful. And, and Height, I think, the writer, he doesn't find it particularly helpful. He, he is working, you read his book, and he works so hard to encourage people to be good. He really, wa- he really wants people to be good, which he should. But he can give you absolutely no why. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, all he can basically say is be good because it's good. <laughs> and this is the problem with evolutionary psychology in general for an, for, as an explanation for right and wrong. Even, if even right and wrong are simply the product of evolution, though the product of a, of a random, designless process that helps some live and some die, then why not abandon them altogether? What, why not? Who cares? If it suits me, why don't I just abandon my herd instinct to help other people? Who cares? Because all evolution can say to me is, well, it seems 
over time more helpful to your survival not to kill people at random. What it cannot say, that's just a description. What it cannot say is, therefore, you ought not to kill. You cannot go from an is to an ought. It doesn't work. An observation about natural selection does not compel me to a moral conclusion. So at the end of the day, I can do whatever I want. It's that this still has not explained where right and wrong come from in any way that compels me to obey or listen, or to build a society on, for that matter. In fact, I think all it really does is it undermines right and wrong. It makes them less important than they really are. And that leads to the second problem that we get with this story about right and wrong. So we can't say where it comes from, and, and if we can't say where it comes from, then we cannot define right and wrong. We actually can't distinguish the two. And when you really begin to push here, right, when we can't say where right and wrong come from, we, we can actually, if we're being honest with ourselves, we then actually can't say what's right and wrong anymore, period. Not with, not with any conviction. This is why most moral philosophers today, okay, the, the leading thinkers in this area, most of them today, would basically say, yeah, there's no such thing as right and wrong. It doesn't exist. It's an illusion of some kind rooted in your evolutionary development. And that's, you know, from Nietzsche to Dostoevsky, the mantra they have observed, if God is dead, if there is no God, then all things are permissible. There is no right and wrong. You can do whatever. There's no reason to do anything someone else tells you to do. Why? It's not rooted in anything. That's why Nietzsche, you know, he basically said, and if anyone tries to tell you what's right and wrong, that's a will to power. They're manipulating you. It's to control you. Any moral statement, period, about right and wrong is a will to power. Right? You, shouldn't ever, you shouldn't say anything about right and wrong because <laughs> all it means is you're trying, to, you're trying to dominate someone else and get them, you manipulate them to do what you want them to do. And basically what moral philosophers have concluded is that moral statements like thou shalt not kill, don't do this, you shouldn't do that, any moral statement at all is really just a preference statement. It's just your personal preference right? Thou shalt not kill is basically, I would prefer it if you didn't kill me. And if you prefer otherwise, well, you know, so be it. We're going to work that out through violence. There is no right and wrong. There's just, there's just preferences. And I'll give you an example. So the, my seminary, one of my seminary professors um, studied under a guy named Richard Rorty. He's an ethical thinker. He's a teacher at uh, Yale in the philosophy department top moral philosopher in the United States, leading moral, leading moral thinker in the United States. And he, and he was saying this. He was saying, okay, uh, morality is an illusion, right and wrong. Um, it's a preference statement whenever you say something's right or wrong. There's no such thing as right and wrong. And one of the students raised their hand and said, okay, what if someone preferred to kill you someday, teacher? What, what if a society tomorrow prefers to kill you? What do you say to that? And Richard Rorty shrugged his shoulders and said, well, sucks for me. I mean, that was his explanation of right and wrong. And he's right. It would suck for him. And it would, would for all of us. It's a terrible explanation. It's a bizarre answer. Does anyone really believe that? Like, does anyone you know really think that? What human institution would survive if we all really took Richard Rorty seriously? Would the justice system survive with that? 
Well, we prefer this one day, but we're gonna, we prefer something else tomorrow. You can steal tomorrow, that's fine. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't actually work. We couldn't survive. And if your teacher, let me make it more personal, if your teacher gave you an F, even though you passed the test, and his explanation was, well, I don't believe in right and wrong, and I prefer that you fail, so I failed you. Is that satisfying to you? Do you nod and say, well, you're right, I, I get an F? No. Well, then why would we build our lives on, a, a right, on an understanding of right and wrong on the same principle? It doesn't, it doesn't help you. And perhaps most troubling to me is that we, if we can't say where it comes from and we can't define what it is, the consequence of that is that we can no longer name evil for evil. We can't call it evil. That category is now off the table. We cannot look at the worst that human beings do to each other and say, I, it's more to me than I just prefer you don't do that. It is wrong. It is fundamentally, in the very fabric of existence, wrong. You cannot say that. And suddenly, all of our conversation as a society and culture, as a people, about justice and fairness and love and everything we hold dear, no matter what story we cling to, they become absolutely meaningless. doesn't matter. Everything that matters most to human life falls apart. We can yell and scream at the injustices of our world that we perceive, but we cannot say why. And we certainly can't make anyone listen. And there's something deeply problematic with a story about right and wrong that wants so badly to do what is right. And it does, but it cannot define why or defend it. Something's broken in, in that. Now, Pastor Tim Keller, he's in New York, he tells a story in his book, Reason for God, really helpful book. He illustrates the point. There's a young couple that comes to his church and they're not, they're not believers. And they basically say, we don't, we, I don't know how we can believe in God, we believe in so very little. That just feels like a huge jump. And they're talking to him. So he said, well, let's start over. Let's forget about God for a minute. Tell me something you believe to be really, really wrong. Let's start with that. Tell me something you believe that's really, really wrong. And the woman, Keller writes, the woman immediately spoke out against practices that marginalized women. And I said, I agree with her fully because I was a Christian who believed that God made all human beings and that's where their value is, is rooted. But I was curious why she thought it was wrong. She responded, women are human beings and human beings have rights. It is wrong to trample on someone's rights. I asked her, how, how did she know that? And puzzled, confused, she said, well, everyone knows it's right to, to, it's wrong. Everyone knows it's wrong to violate the rights of someone else. I said, most people in the world don't know that. They don't have a Western view of human rights. Imagine if someone said to you, everyone knows that women are inferior. You'd say, well, that's not an argument. That's just a statement. And you'd be right. It's not an argument. So let's start again. If there's no God, as you believe, and everyone has just evolved from animals, why would it be wrong to trample on someone's rights? And eventually, the woman had to admit that she didn't know why human rights mattered. They are just there. Now, I don't, I, I bring this up. Here's the point. I bring this up not because I want to poke at this couple. I think they care very deeply morally. I think they have deep moral convictions about right and wrong. I think they want to be good people. I believe all of that. But here, you know, it's, when someone says, right, you know, the human rights are just there. We know with them. We don't, need to talk, we don't need to root them in, in God or anything metaphysical. We just need to say that they're there. I mean, to explain that to the Rwandan genocide, 
explain that to the worst evil human beings can do and say, oh, everybody knows you're not supposed to do that. Do they? Has that been the testimony of history? (laughs) That human beings know right and wrong? They can discern it out of themselves? No. That's not the testimony of history. When we cannot name evil for evil, then we've lost everything. And the biblical story affirms that's exactly what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, when they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's not to get knowledge about what good and bad are. They already know that. What they're doing there is they, they want to be like God. They want to define good and evil. Right? That's what the serpent tempts them with. You can be like him. You can define right and wrong if you eat of this fruit. And, and they, want, I, they want to define it. To eat from the tree meant they could decide now for themselves what is good. They wanted right and wrong without God. And the effects are devastating for everybody. Okay, no matter what story we're in this morning, Christian, non-Christian, skeptic, atheist, I mean, whatever, we feel the effects of this fall still. Even the things we know are good, we do not do. And the things we know are evil, we do them anyway. We need more to the story than our own willpower, our own opinion, to make this world a better place for everybody. And here's the, here's the last point, is that we need a lawgiver The story of right and wrong does not make sense without a lawgiver. We cannot be good without a supreme good. We cannot be just without a judge. For the story of right and wrong to make any sense at all, you need a creator God whose very character is the final reference for good and evil as it was in the garden. That's what you read in Genesis 1 and 2. And honestly, I think we all long for that. Even if you don't want to believe that right now, we long for that kind of moral clarity to name good for good and evil for evil. But we need something more than that too. This is the last thing I want to talk about. We, we need something more than that. And You know, many people I've talked to who come from a, a, different, a different worldview um, and we, we, you're talking about a lawgiver. I, I, one of the biggest critiques you'll hear is that the, the biblical story of right and wrong, kind of the do's and don'ts, is morally restricting. It's like, it, I don't... People don't like, it feels like repression. It feels like you're taking away my self-determination by giving me these rules and you're putting them over my life. Like you need to obey. And I don't, I, you know, I, I wouldn't like that either. And I think we have to admit, as many of us, myself included, as, as Christian people, people who cling to the Christian story, that sometimes we present the Christian life that way. Here are the rules. Here's what it means to be a Christian. You do these things. Here's the law of God. Do it. Uh, and that isn't particularly appealing. And many Christians who follow that end up, they can't, they can't obey it anyway. They want to. So, but that's, you know, they, and people look at the Bible like, I don't want that. I don't want it either. Here, here's actually the Christian story of right and wrong. Let's, let's remind ourselves. So in Genesis 1, very quickly, God speaks. His word is, sent, is the center of how he creates, how he designs, right? If you remember in Genesis 1, he says, let there be light. He speaks, let there be light and there's light. When he gives his moral design for living, particularly in the Ten Commandments, kind of the summary, he speaks it. He speaks the design. He uses his words. God's words are very prominent uh, in the Bible, if you pay attention. So, yes, there's a lawgiver. He gives the law. But in, 
here's the thing. It's not enough to know the law for anybody. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. It's not enough to know what's right and wrong. Because even when we know it, we don't do it. Okay, regardless of what your story is today, if, if there's, a, there's an illustration, if we tied a tape recorder around your neck and just recorded every time you said you should or you shouldn't, would you pass your own standard for the good life? Probably, no, none of us would. We need to know more than we, what we need. We need to know more than the law. We need the law to become flesh. We need to see it. We need to know that God's law loves His word, loves us. We need more than the rules. We need a person who shows us the good life. And, and that's where you see in the Christian story, in John chapter 1, that's why John begins the way he does. He says, the word of God was in the beginning. The word of God. So the very design of God's moral design, His creative power, was with God. Yes, there's a lawgiver, but he says in verse 14, the word, the law became flesh. See, now when we talk about Jesus, the word become flesh, we are talking about the very design of God, the moral design for life in the flesh. As someone you can know, as someone who can teach you, as someone you can, who invites you to follow him to live the good life. And as someone who sacrifices himself for you so that you can become good like him. We all need that story. That is a, that is a profoundly different story. Isn't it? And I decide what's right. Yes, we need a lawgiver, but we have a lawgiver who became flesh. Who sacrifices himself for us. And he is the reason that your favorite story as a child does not end with evil triumphing over good. He is the reason you want a world of justice and equality and goodness. He is the reason that when you see something deeply wrong with the world, your pulse quickens and you, your, your voice raises. He is the reason that when you see beauty and goodness, you, you feel transported to another world. He is good made flesh. And he invites you to know him. He invites you into his story of right and wrong, where through him good does triumph over evil, and but where everyone, even enemies, can become family. That's his story. So back to our question, why be good? Because Jesus made you to be good, and he still can make you good if you trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful story, this reminder that we're designed for right and wrong, yes, but we're designed for so much more than that. We're designed to know you, the author of everything good and beautiful and true in our world. Yes, you define those things, but you invite us into them by trusting in the sacrifice of your son. So, Father, I pray over all of us, may we remember what a beautiful story we have in your son. May we be drawn to him through it. We pray this in his name. Amen.